The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. It's movie time and what we've asked Brian Lloyd from entertainment.ie and Ro McDermott from Hot Press to do today is nominate their best movies of the year. Tell us, Brian, summarise what Uncalling Kuhn is all about and why it's your best movie of the year. A young girl from uh, a large family is essentially neglected, is sent to live with distant relatives uh, played by Carrie Crowley and Andrew Bennett. While there, she you know, was previously neglected, now starts to flourish into their attention. And especially the um, the Andrew Bennett's character is initially aloof, but then kind of warms to her. And as she goes along during this kind of idyllic summer, she then discovers that there's actually a dark, not a dark secret, but a sort of a tragedy has befallen uh, the unit prior to her arrival. That's really it. It's just a basically like sort of an idyllic summer spent with this family. And that's why I love this so much is that it is a very, very simple story. There isn't really a whole lot to it in terms of, you know, plot or anything like that. Really, it's a film about atmosphere and it's really a film about, you know, what is left unsaid and the kind of the power of silence and the power of what is unsaid and what we can kind of infer, you know. Um, It looks absolutely beautiful. Like, it is really one of those films, I think, that... You know, it's not just like big, massive blockbusters that need to be seen in the cinema. I think some films, you do kind of need to be trapped in a room with it, for lack of a better word. And I think on, on Colleen Kuhn is that because you need that big screen to wash over you. When you see all the trees and the light coming through it and all of that kind of good stuff, it really does feel twice as good in the cinema. Ro, the suggestions it could be nominated for Best Foreign Language Movie at the Oscars. I'm surprised it's not in your top ten. I have to say it was a gorgeous film. It really was. I loved the book by Claire Keegan and I think so many people were drawn to the film because of that. And I think, uh, like many people, I get very protective over book adaptations. I thought this was beautiful. I just thought there were a load of films this year that were so great and edged out. But I agree with Brian. I think it's so atmospheric. It's so subtle. I think it captures the view of a child who is hearing things that she doesn't quite understand and that kind of transition period in life at, at that age, which I think is really, really beautifully portrayed. You've gone for your best choice of the year is The Worst Person in the World, which is another foreign language movie. Yeah, this is from Norwegian writer and director Joachim Trier and stars the stunning Renate Rensiv. And we often refer to coming of age as teenagers, but this is a woman who's coming on 30. She's kind of artistic, but flaky. She's emotional, but she's uncertain of what she wants. She gets into these relationships and throws herself in them completely, almost losing her sense of self, picking up hobbies and discarding them. And it's really about her journey to discover who she is and it tracks a series of relationships in her life and how they fall apart Um, but it's also about this idea that we have this idea of adulthood and these milestones you have to hit at a certain age and how those ideas are increasingly crumbling because of housing crisis because of economic crisis the ideas of adulthood are being pushed further and further into the future and it's her grappling with that it's really atmospheric the central character is so beautifully drawn she's complex and complicated and irritating and frustrating and brilliant but I think it really speaks to a time in people's lives when they're looking for fulfilment and kind of have to come to the realisation that they have to find it inside themselves not in other people but really gorgeous Your number two choice Brian is one the David Bowie documentary Mm. movie Moonage Daydream Yeah I absolutely love this and again this is another film I think that deserved to be seen in a cinema and not at home because I've never seen, you know, music documentaries as a rule generally tend to be very very formulaic don't they? It's usually kind of like 
clapped out kind of musician standing behind a big desk in a studio talking about the good old days and, you know, how they're all crazy and did all the drugs and all the rest of it. And normally that can be kind of interesting. That can be kind of a little bit sort of elucidating or whatever. But in Moon Age Daydream, I think... I've never seen a documentary of any kind of artist, be it music, be it actor, be it director, be it uh, visual art, whatever. I've never seen it crawl inside someone's brain like this. Because when you watch this film, you really do see inside of David Bowie's brain. And what's even more interesting is the fact that, you know, it will see him, you'll see him doing an interview talking about like his bisexual shoes or something like that. And then you'll hear him 30 years after the fact talking about, oh, you know, at that age, I just didn't really know what he was doing. And, you know, I wasn't really sure of myself and I was so desperate to be taken seriously, but also kind of trying to thumb my nose at it. So it's almost like he's critiquing himself. He's viewing himself and then speaking to his past self. But then he talks about himself in the future where he's like, you know, oh, I don't want to be one of these clapped out artists that has nothing to say and all the rest. So I want to keep being able to say stuff. So it's this really kind of like past and present and future playing all into one. And then just... The, the range of, uh, of of footage that it uses as well, like everything from Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, to that crap Pepsi ad he did in the 80s with Tina Turner, like everything gets shoved into the hopper and it all looks great. Your number nine choice, Brian, is number two on Rose list. So before we ask her to talk about the Banshees of Inish Sheeran, let's hear a little bit of it. And this is from in the pub where Porrick, played by Colin Farrell, confronts Colin, played by Brendan Gleeson. Now I'm sitting here next to you and if you're going back inside, I'm following you inside and if you're going home, I'm following you there too. Now, if I've done something to you, just tell me what I've done to you. And if I've said something to you, maybe I said something when I was drunk and I've forgotten it, but I don't think I said something when I was drunk and I've forgotten it. But if I did, then tell me what it was and I'd say sorry for that too, Colin. With all my heart, I'd say sorry. Just stop running away from me like some fool of a moody schoolchild. But you didn't say anything to me. And you didn't do anything to me. Well, that's what I was thinking, like. I just don't like you no more. You do like me. I don't. You liked me yesterday. Oh, did I? Yeah. I thought you did. As I said to you at the time when this came out, Ro, I didn't like In Bruges and all the hype mm. about it and I loved this and I don't think Colin Farrell has ever been better than yeah. he is in The Banshees of Inish Aaron. I'm going to genuinely be raging if he doesn't win an Oscar for this. I think it's the performance of his career so far. I think Colin Farrell has always been put into it because he's so handsome. People want him to be an action star or a traditional kind of leading man but he's such a brilliant character actor and this plays to his strength. And I also think I find Martin McDonough, I find some stuff about his writing really clever. I think sometimes he can devolve into a 14 year old boy humour this is his best I think it's such a stripped back emotional story set on this tiny island 1923 the civil war is going on on the mainland and it is just about this friendship breakup between two men but it captures so many themes it's the grief of a friendship that's lost and the shame the fact that we don't have cultural scripts for friendship breakups it's about men discussing their emotions but it's also about this tiny community on this tiny island and how dependent they are on each other so 
when this one friendship starts to disintegrate, everybody in the community is really affected. But it also talks about big philosophical questions like mortality and art and legacy and what do we leave behind and how do we treat each other. I think it's shot beautifully. The landscape is so stunning and kind of all these rolling seas really echo what's going on with the characters. There are performances from Barry Keown and Kerry Condon in the background that are absolutely beautiful. And I just think it's Martin McDonough really stripping back his propensity to throw loads of quips and jokes at the screen and really tell an emotionally heart-filled story that was devastating. I think it's really, really gorgeous. Echoes of John B. Keane, I think a lot of people are saying very much as well. Your number three choice, Brian, this has surprised me. You're smiling at me already. Top Gun Maverick. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And? And what? (laughs) It was one of the big... Hold on a second, right? First of all, it was one of the biggest box office successes of the year in a year where... Cinemas have really been put through the ringer, okay? I will not have anyone sit here and tell me that Top Gun Maverick was not a cinematic experience. It blew my brains out, so it did. It was fantastic. (laughs) Yes, look, okay, fine. It's militaristic propaganda. Yes, of course, you can talk about the homoeroticism if you want from the first one. That makes it better for me. (laughs) That's, I mean, yeah, that's colour to it as far as I can see. But, like, no, I mean, I know people who went to see this and cried at the end of it. So that will tell you how much of a kind of big bombastic kind of thing it was. I enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. And you know something else? You're going to you're gonna make a real face now. I kind of wish I put Jackass Forever on my top 10 list and I forgot to put it in there and I wish I put it in there. So there you go. I will say in the same breath that I will say I want Colin Farrell to get an Oscar, I want Top Gun Maverick to get the Oscar for cinematography because yes. it's not just that it's incredible but they literally created a new way of mm. filming these action scenes. So I have absolutely no arguments against that. Okay, Brian, your number five choice happens to be the number three choice mm. that Roe has offered us. Everything, everywhere, all at once. What's this? Remind me. This is from A24 who have created really interesting original films like Moonlight, Uncut Gems, Midsummer, The Lighthouse, Hereditary, mid-90s Ex Machina but this might be their most madcap frenetic original piece to date so it's directed by the Russo brothers who are kind of always maximalist it's they written- produced it it was directed by Daniels it was, sorry, is the aficionados, Daniel Kwan and Daniel Schneihert. And together with the Russo brothers, they just create this thing that is so kinetic and frenetic. Michelle Yao, in the career performance of her life, she plays this immigrant uh, living in America, running a laundromat with her husband. Uh, she has struggles with her daughter, who is gay, and there are generational struggles there that are going on because the grandfather is around. She uh, Michelle Yao doesn't know how she would cope with her father, knowing that her daughter is gay. So these struggles. And she's also struggling because the IRS are on her back about her taxes. And so she's really having this existential crisis about her life. And then her life opens up and she begins quantum leaping through all the other alternative lives she could have lived as an action star, as an opera singer, as a renowned chef, as a maid. And uh, she's learning all of these different skills, but she keeps coming up against this villain who is somebody very close to her in her life. And so it's exploring what we want our lives to be, all these incredible hypotheticals, but the value that is at the heart of all of our lives but the visuals are just madcap and kooky and funny and heartbreaking it's just a mass of excess and emotion Your number four is Prey remind me what that is Prey yeah so this was on Disney Plus which I mean look this should have got a cinema release but for whatever reason it was sent into Disney Plus but yeah this was a uh, prequel to the Predator series and it stars Amber Midthunder she plays a Native American woman um, and it's set in you know the 17th century in the um 
you know, in the in the west in the western kind of regions of America, and a predator ship lands on their on their turf, and essentially the predator goes on a hunting spree and is is basically tracking down members of her tribe. She then has to survive against the predator, and it was really it was done in such a way I think that. It was like Jaws. It was just a survival thriller. It wasn't necessarily a horror. It wasn't necessarily an all-out action film. It was a survival thriller. And I think Amber Midthunder, you know, she was brilliant. She was in this series uh, that was out a couple of years ago called Legion that I thought was really, really good. But yeah, just really smart, really tightly directed, I thought. Okay, you've gone as your number four choice role for the Sinead O'Connor documentary, Nothing Compares. Directed by Catherine Ferguson, who actually directed some of Sinead O'Connor's first ever music videos and has this lifelong love for Sinead. And it's really evident how much love and adoration and respect she has for Sinead. This isn't a traditional biopic. It's not looking at Sinead's whole life. It's looking at a slice of her career between 1987 and 1993 when she was at the height of her fame. Uh, awards being thrown at her internationally. But it's how she used her platform to speak out about things like racism, sexism within the industry and of course church abuse culminating in that now infamous moment on SNL where she tore up a picture on the Pope but the way the media responded to her, the way they lambasted her and told women through Sinead O'Connor, if you speak out about these issues we're going to punish you and they almost turned Sinead O'Connor into this theatricality of silencing. So it uses incredible archive footage to show how she was patronised, how she was silenced but it's actually a really galvanising film because it's about the progress of Ireland how we've moved beyond this state of telling women to shut up. Of We've moved to the point where we know that Sinead was right about so many of the things she was speaking about. So it's really galvanising and really respectful, which is really important for a documentary about particularly women in the limelight. Gorgeous. We've already discussed, Brian, your number five. So let's take your number six, which is number eight on Rose List, After Sun. After Sun. Yeah, this is great. I love this. Um, Charlotte Wells, uh, this is her directorial debut and to be honest, I cannot wait to see what she does next. Paul Meskel, brilliant here. Kind of playing, I suppose, a version of his character in Normal People in that he's this kind of young man with a real deep reservoir of emotions, very, very kind of emotionally raw and vulnerable, but is trying his best and trying to connect with his young daughter, played by Frankie Corio. They go off on this kind of package holiday in Turkey. And really it's just kind of, I guess... A sort of a slice of life, how they get along, their kind of burgeoning relationship. He's kind of entering into adulthood. He's kind of turning 30. His daughter is coming into, I, I suppose, coming into adolescence. And it's the kind of the awkwardness between the two of them. And it's captured really, really well and done very subtly, I think, as well. It's not kind of big, you know, emotional gestures. It's just small moments of tenderness. I think that really makes it. Your number five, Triangle of Sadness. Yeah, this is the Swedish director Ruben Osland, and he's become a master of exploring how hyper-privileged people react in deeply uncomfortable uh, situations. So you might remember Force Majeure, which was about a family, and there was a uh, engineered avalanche, and the father, instead of protecting his family, ran off and left them, and then they had to deal with the aftermath over a week, and there was a very dodgy remake of it. He also did The Square, but this is about a bunch of very, very wealthy and very beautiful people uh, on a luxury cruise together that's starts going very, very wrong. So we have a young couple, Harris Dickinson and Charlie Dean. They play uh, a couple who are together. They're both models. They're kind of in it for the social media boost. They don't really like each other, but they're using their beauty as forms of currency. So we can see this play out in their relationship and also in the fact that they get admission on this luxury cruise. But when they're confronted with a lot of hyper wealthy people, when things start to go wrong, the power dynamics shift. It's farcical. It's biting. It's really funny satire. Great character studies. 
deeply uncomfortable. There's a lengthy stretch in the middle that's like a Monty Python sketch gone mad. I just think he's so brilliant at poking fun of political and social issues. Really good fun. Friends of mine saw that last weekend as well. Absolutely loved it. Okay, we have to finish. I know you also had Licorice Pizza, Lyra, Emergency and Official Competition mm-hmm. as your other selections row. And Brian, you had... The Batman, mm-hmm. Glass Onion and yep. Elvis yeah. as your other selections. Unfortunately, we don't have time to discuss it. We're finished for this evening. Thank you, Brian Lloyd and Ron McDermott. Thank you to everyone involved in the production team. Back tomorrow at half four for me, Matt Cooper. Have a very good evening. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today is-